You're listening to the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast, episode 9, Jimmy Haslip. Lessons Melbourne and I've got another player profile video for you. Super honoured to have next to me Mr Jimmy Haslip. Um, Jimmy, thank Thanks you so for, much. Thank you. Um, I saw your show the other night, it was blistering. Uh, hanging in there. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Work in progress. So you're out here with um, Jeff Lorber? Yes. Yeah, doing the fusion. We're here doing the fusion for the whole week, so it's been really, really a lot of fun. And uh, uh, also with uh, Gary Novak, mm. a really fantastic, incredible drummer, and um, uh, a saxophonist named uh, Patrick Lamb, who's an old friend of actually of uh, of Jeff Lorber's from Portland, Oregon. Okay, so fine, a very fine saxophonist. Yeah, certainly mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, Patrick. <laughs> hey, speaking of the <laughs> devil. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. No, it's all good. Just going by. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> um, so maybe we're just going to get a little bit of history um, for from when you started playing. I think you were about thirteen. I started when I was. I started playing bass when I was thirteen. Yeah. I started playing trumpet when I was seven. So uh, during the course of playing trumpet in the school bands and things. Um, uh, I hooked up with some buddies of mine that wanted to start a little rock and roll band and they needed a bass player so I was sort of elected to play bass. Um, so not uh, being able to find a left hand, I'm left handed yep. so, and it was very difficult to find a left handed instrument. I was 1963. Are you in New York? I grew up in New York, yeah. Actually Long Island. Okay. Um, so very difficult to find a lefty bass so I just ended up buying a righty bass and then because I was left handed I just flipped it upside down I, I knew nothing about the technique or yeah. you know being a trumpet player um, and really just learning about music in general yeah. um, uh, so I just flipped the right handed bass upside down and, and uh, learned how to play that and uh, cool. didn't think it was going to be my career. <laughs> I thought it was just going to be a fun thing to do uh, with some schoolmates. And, and I think that's how a lot of people start out. Yeah. You know. And I loved music. So yeah. that was a no brainer, you know, it was, yeah. and it was a ball to like learn songs. And I, I had, um, I, I would say, um, just because of the fact that I grew up in a very musical household, not that not that there were other musicians in the household, mm-hmm. but 
there was always a lot of music in the house. Yeah. My family loved music, so you know that obviously rubbed off on me, and I was listening to all kinds of things growing up, uh, from salsa to jazz to big band music, classical music. And then, of course, a lot of music of my peers, you know, which was anything from candy pop music to like R&B, Motown, mm. uh, to like um, more sophisticated pop music like Beatles and, uh, you know, Rolling Stones, rock yeah, and roll. Led Zeppelin, you know, all that started coming into play in the 60s, mm. um, which uh, I consider a renaissance in the, you know, in music. Sure. Um, yeah. So I was kind of fortunate to uh, be around learning about music while all that was going on. Yeah. And then living only about uh, about an hour away from Manhattan, uh, it was easy to get to a big city like New York. And New York being a place where a lot of people wanted to play, I got to see almost everybody you could imagine in a bunch of venues around New York. There was yeah. the Fillmore East, there was Madison Square Garden. Uh, down in the village, there was a variety of jazz clubs from the Village Gay to the Village Vanguard to mm. even places like Folk City and the Bitter End, you Bitter know. End. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All famous places, right? And then, uh, all around New York, there's a whole network of colleges. So colleges would have also would have in their auditoriums and theaters would have concerts. Mm -hmm. So I got to see all sorts, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Yes, Frank Zappa, right. Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, but, and also, I must say, inspiring. So mm. being that I was kind of learning how to play the bass and being able to see all this music firsthand yeah. uh, was completely was inspiring. There, was there like a kind of, you know, a certain moment where you kind of went, yeah, this is... It, <laughs> it was my first year in college. Um, Studying music? Or? No. Uh, I, my major was English literature and I had a minor in uh, 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 theater. Yeah, that was my minor. Um, and I must say, I was completely bored. <laughs> <laughs> but I was attending my first year of school. And, you know, as, as you probably know, you know, first year in college is uh, it's always hard. You're not really sure what exactly you want to do. Like you're just figuring stuff out. So I just, I liked English literature. I liked theater arts. Mm -hmm. So... I just kind of went for that to have something going on to get my feet wet, so yeah. to speak. And then in the course of studying at this little community college, which was out on Long Island, uh, I hooked up with some uh, friends uh, at a local bar, and I ran into a guy I hadn't seen in a while who, that I was actually in a band with in high school. And he had a cousin who was a really advanced musician, uh, much older than me. Um, you know, I was 18, and his cousin was like 28, which, when you're 18, a 28-year-old seems ancient. Yeah, you know? that's old. So um, uh, I ran into this friend of mine, and he said, hey, my cousin's putting a band together to do some club dates, and they're looking for a bass player if you're 
interested in auditioning, um, you know, here's the number, call them up. So I called the number just uh, on a fluke. Uh, I went to the audition, uh, played a bunch of tunes with these guys. Uh, it was basically a B3 player, which was my friend's cousin, a guitar player and a drummer, and then I played a bunch of tunes with them. And I left there feeling pretty good, but I thought they're never gonna hire me. I'm too yeah, young yeah. and uh, green mm -hmm. and all that. These guys were all experienced kind of, uh, you know, had, had a lot going on. Yeah. And lo and behold, I got a phone call a few days later and I got the gig. And then, then what happened was I started doing club dates uh, with these guys. I had to learn like a 50-tune repertoire and uh, started doing club dates with them like seven nights a week, five shows a night. Five shows a night? Yeah, starting at like nine, like nine to... 9 to 9.45, 10 to 10.45, 11 to 11.45, and onward till like almost 3 in the morning, right? Yeah, yeah, wow. And then to get to class next day was really getting pretty rough, so I had to make a decision at one yeah. point, and I ended up leaving school and, you know, focusing on mm. playing uh, with this band, and I think right around then is when I decided... You got the bug. Let me let me check this out. This is a lot more fun than English lit classes. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and, um, I mean, back back then, how do you go around learning that kind of repertoire? I know if I'm prepping for a gig, I either look it up on YouTube or you know, I, I have access to it online. But how did you go around learning, you know, fifty top forty hits of the day? Well, I had a lot of records, and some right. of the music that was on the list to learn, I already sort of knew it, cool. you know, from playing in the bands that I was in in high school, mm -hmm. junior high school. They were just like some typical R&B tunes, you know, some Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, cool. you know, some really cool tunes that I already kind of knew, you know, yep. Cold Sweat, cool. you know, yep. things like that. Papa's got a brand new bag. Uh, I want to take you higher. Set lists haven't changed. Yeah, <laughs> and even like groups like Creedence Clearwater, you know, there's a song called On the, uh, um, uh, on the Corner. On the Corner. Yeah, that's a cool tune. Yeah. Uh, you know, stuff like that. So I kind of already had a handle on okay. a lot of the repertoire. And then there were things that I'd never heard of. So I went out to like, we had record stores back then. So went and bought the 45s. I had a little uh, uh, turntable, sure. put it on there, and I'd sit there for an hour and pick out the bass part. You know, no yeah. chart, nothing. Just listen to it, and um, you know, I had a pretty good ear for mm. for music, so I could pick stuff up really quick. And in, in doing that, I ended up memorizing stuff really that's quickly the, that's the as best well. Way, I think. Mm -hmm. So I. Prepared myself, went to, uh, I think it was a couple of rehearsals, and then, boom, we, we uh, got into this club. It was a two-week engagement, five shows a night for two weeks wow. in one setting, you know, one place. Yeah. And uh, it was awesome. Yeah, I'm sure. So, Were you playing P-Bass like then? Uh, the first bass I had was a weird uh, little <laughs> Japanese instrument called a Zimgar bass. It was like three-quarter neck. Okay, cool. So, you know, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about the instruments either. So, and, and that was like the cheapest thing I could buy. I didn't have a big budget. So I bought that and learned like, in the first band I learned like maybe 15 tunes that we played at parties. But then the repertoire started getting bigger. 
And as I started playing with other musicians, I started realizing I needed a better instrument. So the next instrument I got was a, a Hofner Beetle Bass. All right. Which was a really cool instrument. I, I wish I still had it. Yeah. I bought it in 1967. <laughs> and it was the violin Paul McCartney version. So I played that for uh, probably the last three years of my high school from like uh, sophomore, junior, senior year. Sure. And then when I hooked up with these guys playing the top 40 band yeah. and all that, they hipped me to what, you know, what was the hip thing to do was to have a P bass. Right. right. So I went and I got a P bass. Okay. And do you still that have time. that one? No. I wish I did. That was a 19, uh, 1969 blonde, uh, left-handed yeah. precision. Yeah. Um, and so how... How was the jump? What was the jump from P bass to to a more exotic instrument? Yeah, to yeah. something slightly more advanced. So uh, in 1975, after bouncing around the U.S. for a while, uh, 1975, I ended up in Los Angeles to work with this drummer, a famous drummer named Carmine Apice, yeah. uh, who played with the Vanilla Fudge and Rod Stewart and variety of other Jeff Beck so you, you went out there to play with him yeah I met him uh, prior to moving to Los Angeles in New Orleans and he he invited me to come to LA to do some stuff with him possibly and I thought that was an interesting opportunity so yeah. I I ended up over there and I hung with him and I did some record I did a record with him um, and then through him I met some other really great musicians um, and, uh, you know, I, I eventually decided to live in Los Angeles to, you know, see, see what would come about. And there was a lot going on there <clears throat> at the time. So I thought this could be a good place to be for mm -hmm. a musician. So uh, I started playing with a lot of people. And then I met a, a, another bass player at one point who turned me on to Bernardo Rico. Do you know who that is? I don't know Bernardo Rico. Bernardo Rico started a company called BC Rich. Okay. Okay, so <laughs> I met Bernardo, and Bernardo was very kind and saw that I had some talent and uh, offered to build me an instrument. Cool. And that was the first exotic bass I had, which was a BC Rich Eagle. I think there was a, that's Eagle. the model. I mean, they, they all had some kind of point. I think yeah. Some, yeah, they had some kind of name or whatever. So, yeah. so this was a, a BC Rich Eagle bass. It was okay. all made out of koa, which is a Hawaiian wood. And they had, and he experimented with my bass. He said, I got these new pickups in. They were hand wound special Dermazio pickups. Mm. So I put, he put those in there. So I had that bass for a while. And that was still just four string. That was a four stringer. And, uh, and then I ended up getting a lot of gigs playing with various people. So mm. played with uh, Tom Scott, Steve Kahn, uh, Flora Purim and Ayerto, Harvey Mandel, um, Tommy Bolin. Okay. So I was playing with all those people. But I was playing, I was using the, um, the BC Rich bass for some of those gigs and for some of the other gigs I'd use the P bass. Sure. So, Depending on what, yeah, what the, the aesthetic was. Right. Like for with Tommy Bowen, I mostly played the B bass because it was just rock and cool. gig. You yeah, know? yeah. Seemed to fit the 
profile. And was the BC Rich P pickup in jazz or? It was uh, it was like a, a, a P bass um, configuration. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and I and I was mostly using that in the studio for some reason, but I would break it out and do live gigs as well. I, I used it exclusively, I think, with uh, with Flora Purim at one point. But then um, I went back to just playing like P basses and stuff, and then I got a bass built by, there was a music store in LA called Valley Arts that was pretty famous. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Larry Carlton was one of the owners of the store. Oh, okay. And there was a really hip luthier on the premise. So I had a bass built by him, mm -hmm. which is kind of like a souped up Fender bass, right. uh, P bass kind of thing. And I used that with Shaka Khan and Al Jarreau, a bunch oh, of people. Is like that, that what's on Montreux? Yeah, uh, was it? I think it was. Boy, I'm trying to remember now what I played on. I think actually, I think my P. I think I was playing my P bass. Right. I was playing the the Fender P bass. Yeah, that's a on great that album. Game. Yeah, that yeah. the live Montreal thing. Yeah, the uh, Casino Lights. Yeah. yeah. And, and oh, you know what? I, I think right before we did that, we signed a deal with Yamaha. So I had a Yamaha BB-1200. Okay. I think that's what I actually used on, on the video and probably on the record right, okay. as well. Five, four string? Four. Okay. I didn't go to five string until uh, I think it was around 1985. Okay, it's pretty early. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten a five string in like 1984. Right. But I was a little chicken to <laughs> play it full time. And I thought, in order to really break this out, I need to spend time with it. So I spent a lot of time with it. And um, then I broke it out like maybe tail end of 84, 85. And then I was using it with the Yellow Jackets. And, um, and that was uh, Yamaha. Which was a funny thing because, you know, whenever you endorse an instrument, they always tell the endorsees if you have any ideas and things to share with no our R&D department, you know, please bring those ideas forth and, you know, we'll look into it. So I had gone to a concert near my house where I was living in Los Angeles and it was uh, Claire Fisher. Do you know who that is? I know the name. He's a piano player. He's no longer with us, but a brilliant uh, piano player. And, and he, um, he kind of wrote this modern salsa jazz music, you okay. know. So um, I was checking him out in this little club near my house. And the bass just seemed to have a lot of extra low end. And I was going, what is that? And then I noticed that the bass had five tuning pegs. Uh, who is the bass player? Jimmy Johnson. Ah, cool. <laughs> so I walked up to Jimmy John. I never right. met him before. <laughs> I introduced myself and I asked him about his instrument. He had an Olympic five-string bass, and he showed it to me. He was very gracious, and I went, drove home, and I said, "I'm going down the Yamaha, and I'm going to tell him that the next thing that's going to be happening for the electric bass." is five strings, having a low B string below the E. So I went down to Yamaha and they looked at me like I was out of my mind. <laughs> Except for one guy. And that one guy sat down with me 
and said, do you really want a five-string bass? And I said, I'd love to get one. So he put an order in and oversaw the making of a five-string Yamaha bass, which they didn't have in stock. Right. He made a special instrument out of a BB-3000. Ah. I got the instrument. I paid for it you know, and took it on the road. And then supposedly, I don't know this for sure, but I heard through the grapevine that they got dozens upon dozens of requests for their new five-string bass. <laughs> so they scrambled and they came up with, uh, in the shop, w with an instrument uh, that they called a BB-5000, right. which was their first five-string bass. Yeah. And then I believe Nathan East got one. and. So it's, I, it's your fault. It's kind of my fault, although I won't. I won't. I don't care who got credit for it. Yeah. All I cared about was that I got one yeah, and yeah. I was able to take it on the road and work on it. And yeah, cool. So, so uh, after that, I met Mike Tobias, and then I started totally being involved in playing exotic instruments. So I played yeah. Tobias for many years. Then I went. Then the next guy I met was uh, Keith Roscoe, and he makes my instruments now. Although I'm still uh, doing work for MTD, because okay. um, eventually, you know, Mike had to sell his company to Gibson. Gibson didn't really do a good thing with him. Mm -hmm. They kind of, I think, they kind of screwed him over on some level, um, and basically let him go. Right. took his company and as far as I'm concerned I'll it's my opinion but I believe they uh, pretty much destroyed the the uh, quality of the instrument right so Tobias is from like say 1990 91 on or Gibson made and not good quality and everything prior to that is Mike's Mike work and work. that's the that's the uh, beautiful yeah. instruments that yeah. that, uh, that we all loved, yeah. and I happen to own a, a few of those. Oh, know. one of the older, some of the older ones. From yeah, I still have uh, I still have two uh, beautiful fretlesses that Mike made me. One in uh, he made me one in 1987, and one in 1988. And uh, the one in 87 was a five stringer, and the one in 88 was an eight uh, six stringer. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. So. Uh, and I have a few four stringers that are still really cool that I'll bust out and use in the yeah. studio. Um, so that's it. Those, yeah. those are the instruments. I'm still playing uh, MTDs. I still have some other interesting instruments that I play in the studio, including this gentleman made a bass for me in Japan, a company called Innerwood. Hmm. And it's one of the main workhorses in the studio okay. it's, it's like a souped up p bass right yeah it's amazing how you know the p bass and jazz bass is still very much the staple and it's the, the staple. stuff it's what we've heard on so many records i guess that yeah it just that's fits. the deal <laughs> and um i'm just going to move this down a little bit yeah, cool um talking about studio work um you mentioned that you're doing a fair bit of producing or have been I have been over the years. Yeah. Um, I've produced probably close to 150 records to wow. date, um, which all kind of started in the 80s. Mm. 
but it really kind of took hold uh, when I left uh, the Yellow Jackets in 2012. And part of my reason for leaving was that I was getting a lot of solicitation to produce, and I just couldn't find the time on the calendar to sure. make it all work. And it was work that I was really interested in. Yeah. And I at mean, that, how, how, so how long were you with the Yellow Jackets for? I mean, Thirty-two years. 30 years so. Yeah. So at that point, I was kind of feeling like I needed to do something else, and the production thing was just kind of, you know, coming at me in full blast. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's time for me to um, change my direction mm -hmm. here. Um, in 2012, I turned sixty. And uh, I, you know, started thinking about that as well, because mm. uh, I've been touring quite a bit uh, since the mid '70s. So it was kind of like, you know, this might be a good time to just kind of slow things down with the touring, spend more time at home, and spend more time in the studio. Uh, so, you know, kind of a healthier environment in that sense, and. Uh, and also uh, focusing and submerging myself into work that I was very interested in learning more about, which I already had, I think, a pretty good sense of it. Because you've done so many albums. I had already musician. done, yeah. And f and f well, I, I co-produced uh, 20 Yellow Jackets yeah. records, sure. and those were pretty ambitious. So I, I learned quite a bit doing just that. Yeah. And then I did a lot of outside stuff uh, all through the years as well. But since I left the Jackets in 2012, I've produced over 40 records. So it, it intensified, and I was able to also accommodate, schedule-wise, all these projects. So yeah. I've been averaging about 10 records a year. Okay. And so f from 2012 till now, what's been kind of your, your live diary, your, your gigging diary like then? Well, live playing, I've done... I, I've hooked up with a few things, and uh, mostly with uh, Jeff Lorber. Okay. Because I've, I also been co-producing those records. Mm. So we're on now. We're working on our fifth uh, Jeff Lorber fusion record right now, and uh, so I've done four already, of of which I mentioned to you before. Two were nominated for Grammys. So yeah. Uh, that's been a, a fruitful and uh, did, fertile did the Grammy, relationship. I mean, did, did the Grammy nominations then, did the phone start ringing more because you were suddenly on a list of for production? Or is it hard to kind of gauge? It's hard to gauge, but I mean, uh, I, you know, I have to thank the Yellow Jackets for the, the whole Grammy connection because I was nominated 18 times uh, with the Yellow Jackets, yeah. you know, so... Um, and then there was a record that I was uh, part of the nomination, which was a Bob Mincer record, which essentially was a Yellow Jackets record. Sure. So, right. um, so in essence, I got 19 nominations with the Yellow Jackets, and then these two with uh, the Jeff Lorber yeah. Fusion. So, you know, I've, I'm honored, and uh, you know. It, it, on a, on a different level, it's been incentive and inspiration to keep doing what I'm doing, mm. you know, because it's, it, uh, you know, it's just fuel for the fire. Sure, yeah. And, and I definitely have a fire. I'm a, I think my wife will 
will vouch for the fact that I'm a workaholic, but but it's you know it's it's beautiful work you sure. know to be doesn't feel like work. No, it's you're surrounded by wonderful musicians and you know yeah. you're making music. Music yeah. is a beautiful gift. And how do you? Because obviously you've been making records for a few years. How would you say your um, production style has shifted? Um, maybe in relation to the technology or just in relation to your experiences from the 80s to 2000, for example? Well, bottom line is always when I'm producing a record, I just want to make sure I got, you know, the best songs that could be included in a project. Sure. Songs are the most important part so of a pre -production record. pre-production as well you're involved in? Yes, okay. uh, pre-production and then, you know, if, if you're fortunate to have an artist or a band that they have wonderful composers, they're writing really interesting, unique, wonderful music. That's great, but that doesn't always work out. Sometimes you're working with an artist that needs help along those lines. So, you know, I, I know where to find music. Uh, you know, you can do covers maybe, or hook up with other writers and arrangers and, uh, you know, work on getting the music uh, up to a high quality yeah. and so that's the most important thing then you know all these other things come into play uh, in the process so there's all the technology and of course technology has grown intensely over the years I mean when I first started recording in the 70s uh, even in this I did some recording in the late 60s but um, that was all tape and uh, the whole different ball game there. Um, and now, basically, we're just looking into computer screens. Uh, and uh, it's all zeros and ones, you yeah. know. So tape is gone. And, um, but, you know, uh, having an open mind, which I recommend to all musicians, uh, you just keep learning, and it's an opportunity to learn new things. Yeah. And in learning new things, uh, you end up being becoming better at creative, your craft, yeah. and yeah. and and hopefully more creative yeah. and and better at what you do. Sure. Because the technology, if it's used correctly, will make you better. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a tool. It's like an instrument. It's mm -hmm. you know, you gotta, on on in some respect, you gotta practice it as well to get the most yeah. out of it. And I'm not really a, st I'm not like a killer Pro Tools guy. Yeah, you're not all shortcuts. <laughs> Jeff is. Yeah. Jeff is killing. So yeah. I'm fortunate to work with him. And he's got full-blown Pro Tools up at his studio, and that's oh. where we do his records. Um, and then I'm fortunate to have relationships with at least another dozen or so engineers that are also astute in Pro Tools uh, yeah. and other uh, yeah. logic uh you know, DP. Mm -hmm. um, I even <laughs> I'm do I'm recording a a guy now uh, who's doing. He's demanding on doing the sessions himself, uh, overdubs, um, and he's on Cubase, which is something that I don't know a lot about. Mm -hmm. But uh, engineer that's the chief engineer on the project knows a little bit about it, and those other people that know about Cubase, so it, 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 it all works, yeah. it all works. Yeah. And the bottom line is making a nice record. So, yeah. so that, you have that all this- That hasn't changed. No, that has not changed. 
because you you know you want to try to get the best out of every project sure. you know the best possible playing the best songs and the best uh, sonic sound mm. and uh, all that and I'm not saying that I accomplish that every time I produce but that's something the, that's the goal anyway. but that's that's yeah. the uh, that's what I'm looking for sure. you know I'm looking yeah, to do that on every record um, and sometimes I achieve that and sometimes I don't um, uh, but I'll get close you know yeah. and at least I'll I try yeah you know so the intent is always there mm. and you kind of in a situation where you can really just be involved with stuff that you want to be involved with I guess because you're not pressure from labels or anything it's mostly yeah Mostly, yeah. It's mostly that. Um, Still got to pay bills and stuff. But like I, I have taken on other things, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, because of financial needs. Sure. I have a family and, yeah. you know, it's the way I make a living. So, um, and in, the, in those cases, I still want to do excellent work. Sure. And I, and I want to bring the artist up to a, a higher level. Yeah. You know, and, and hopefully uh, create something that, you know, will be will be part of what their vision was, yeah. you know, or their entire vision, you yeah. know, hopefully. Um, but I'm very I'm very open minded when I produce uh, other than, you know, probably the toughest thing is just to make sure that, you know, you got good songs because mm. uh, ever since I was a kid. You know, uh, especially in the '60s, radio was really important, and you always heard really good songs on the radio. You know, it's maybe not the case today, but but um, you know, I'm always searching the radio for for new music, Standing, yeah. and you know, even sitting in a restaurant and sure. like today, I was uh, at the coffee shop and I heard something, and I was really I was disappointed because I, I have this app on my phone. If I don't Shazam. know something, it's uh, sound, um, Soundhound. Yeah. Uh, so I held it up, but it was too noisy in there, so I couldn't get this uh, yeah. song. I'm always listening and trying to learn about new artists, new music, cool. and yeah. uh, you know, being a producer, I think it's uh, part of my job description to always be on the yeah, lookout and. You know, have my ears open and yeah. listen to as much music as I can, and I listen to everything. Cool. You know, from classical, uh, Latin, jazz, uh, funk, rock, pop, uh, country, you name it. I listen yeah. to it and uh, try to find. You know, is there the, any the, any recent or current artists that have really caught your ear in the in the kind of jazz or fusion or funk world? Yeah. Um, Gosh, well, there's there in the funk world. There's a uh, funk pop. There's a band that that uh, I watch on YouTube, and I've actually played. It's two people. It's a drummer named Louis Cole, and his girlfriend. His name, her name is Genevieve, but I forget her mm -hmm. last name. And they have a group called Knower. It's yeah. K N O W E R. I'm a big fan of theirs. Right. And With um. And Tim LaFave. Yeah, Tim LaFave plays with them. So yeah, that's right. We had Tim, Tim on the... On that's the right. And I'm a big fan of Tim's. Yeah. So. Yeah, that stuff is... Yeah. And it reminds me of some stuff that I was a big fan of, I uh, believe in the 80s, 70s, 80s. Uh, it was a group called Screedy Politi. Oh. Yeah. So it has... If you get a chance, Google Screedy Politi. Screedy Politi. Mm -hmm. Everything comes from somewhere, huh? Yeah. 
And you'll hear it's it. They're not. I don't think they're stealing anything no. from anybody. But you'll hear some. I don't even know if they listen to Screedy Pleaty, <laughs> but I I hear some remnants of what that was in mm. their music, and it's awesome. It's that really super tight funk, yeah. uh, groove stuff, you yeah, know. Cool. So yeah, I like that. Um, as far as musicians, gosh, there's a lot of people. I'm trying to <laughs> remember everything I've been listening to. Um, uh, there's, and I can't remember her name now, um, there's a gal, she's a saxophonist from, I believe she's from Columbia. Okay. And she went to Berkeley, and I think she won like the Thelonious Monk Award, and then she ended up with a record deal on Concord. She's done a couple of records, I think, for them, and they're awesome, and she sounds great. Um, but, you know, lately, uh, God, if I... If I could have, I would have prepared a little list because I listen to so much stuff. Just curious. Um, Snar Snarky Puppy, I mean, they've obviously. Yeah, um, they're cool. You know, oh, uh, there's a kid um, that I'm a big fan of who's from England. His name is Jake Jacob Collier. Yeah. <laughs> He's fantastic. He's super talented. Yeah. yeah. So, a uh, big fan of his. There's a band from Melbourne who have um, been getting some traction. Hiatus Coyote. Oh, wow. I'll have to look them up. Yeah. Um, I think they had a Grammy nomination and awesome. super kind of real melting pot of um, like synth pop, but with super tight, you know, uh, almost like programmed beats, but it's all live. And oh, good. Yeah, really, really awesome. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. At the, at the gig the other night, um, first, I saw you play a couple of years ago with um, Robin Ford and Michael Lando, and that was with Gary. Yeah, Gary was well. playing drums, yeah. Um, but la with the, the Fusion gig, uh, Jeff Lauber, um, it felt like you had a, a really, the, your R&B roots really kind of shone through, I thought. Yeah. Um, especially kind of that Rocco 16th. All that's, well, I'm a huge fan of the Tower of Power. <laughs> right. Yeah, and of course, Rocco, Francis Rocco Prestia, um, huge fan of his. Yeah. And I remember hearing the first time I ever heard Tower of Power, I was living in San Francisco in 1971. Okay. And uh, this tune came on the radio. I was in a car and had the radio on. And I said, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard anything like it. And they said, oh, it's a local band from Oakland over here called Tower of Power. And I ran right out and got their record. They had a record out called Bump City, uh, which uh, which was an earlier release, and then I think they had just released uh, What Is Hip, right? So and I and that's what's hip. <laughs> yeah, I I bought that and I took it back to where I was staying and submerged myself in that yeah. for months. <laughs> so. Um, and you know, I, I studied uh, on and off during the course of a year in 1975 with Jaco Pastorius. And Jaco was, I think, a, a big fan of, of Rocco's as well. Well, those two guys, I mean, they're, they're 16th, and your 16th subdivisions are just so, you know. Jaco showed up. me some things to work on, so. <laughs> and I did, and, and even then, uh, he, he actually acknowledged that I had uh, Fairly good technique, and that was a big compliment coming from sure. him. Yeah. Um, 
But he, he, he gave me some exercises and some things to focus on, which really kind of put me in a, in a good path. Yeah. You know? Technical or more kind of musical, holistic kind Just of stuff? Just the technical things. Right. Like, you know, he told me to study some Bach uh, etudes and to like really um, listen to each note and try to give each note equal quality of, uh, you know, of, importance. Of, of importance, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I hadn't really, you know, I had chops and I was playing a lot of fairly intricate R&B music in those mm -hmm. days, but I, after spending some time with him, it really made me focus further and yeah. put myself under the microscope. Because he kind of had that, he did the, the R&B cover band, you know, Shed Time oh, as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. um, he played with uh, Wayne Conkren, right? Wayne Conkren, C.C. Ryder. C.C. Ryder, a big R&B band. Oh. That was an awesome band, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and that was in the early 70s, mid-70s. So right. I, I went on a tirade to, like, practice my ass off. That was know. that, would you say that was your woodshed? Before, actually, before that was. Before that. Yeah, but, but it extended after I met Jocko. After I met Jocko, yeah. Because uh, from, like, 1971 to 1975, I was averaging anywhere from six to sometimes ten hours a day of practicing. Huge. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, with days off, too, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> which uh, I had a really a cool teacher uh, to start because, you know, because I play very unconventional. So I got turned down by a lot of teachers okay. who, who said, you know, either you learn how to play right handed or I'm not teaching you, you know. Still, so, still notes, it's still <laughs> music, yeah. you know. So I, I would get depressed and walk away and then I practice on my own. And then finally I hooked up. Uh, with a guy who was a tuba player okay. and he taught me and I learned all the diatonic system with him, the pentatonic system and even showed me to play some piano okay. and he said this is important. Is that doing okay? Yeah. yeah. He, he, uh, <laughs> That's it. He, he, um, he, this first teacher that I really spent time with uh, showed me the importance of like learning how to play a little piano you know, sure. to really help out and and in essence I have to blame him for uh, then that being an inspiration to move ahead with uh, getting into composition okay so that's when I started really right focusing on writing sure and uh, and it came in really handy years later when I, well, I, I even before that, but but when I joined the Yellow Jackets, it came in really handy because then I was able to contribute uh, on the along the lines of the composition. Yeah, yeah, and um, my friend asked so, me. So so Rocco. So so yeah. Rocco, yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely that in there, and the, there's a, uh, would it be fair to say there's a certain amount of kind of. Um, blues lyricism in your melodic playing? Yeah, and that's, that has a lot to do with the fact that for like five, six years, I lived in a duplex in Los Feliz, uh, which is a little area of Los Angeles, okay. near Griffith Park, uh, a little residential area there. Um, and I lived in this duplex 
I lived in the downstairs apartment and upstairs with Robin Ford. So I spent a lot of time with Robin and I picked up a lot of that blues. uh, And at the time I was looking for a voice somehow to, you know, Mm. how can I really get something a little different in my soloing chops? Because I didn't feel like I had a good handle on my soloing. And I was working on it. I had chops, but I just, idea-wise, I was really struggling. And then when I spent time with Robin and started playing a lot with him and hanging with him and doing some woodshedding with him, I started picking up all this blues stuff. And then I started studying blues players. (laughs) So I was listening to Eric Clapton and Hendrix and and B.B. King and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that kind of became the foundation for my soloing yeah although in recent years in many of the recent years i've been trying to expand on all that and i can't say i'm a like a bebop player because that's you know in reality i was never really a jazz player Mm. i mean i grew up uh, playing r&b music rock and roll and pop and i had a, a, a instinctual good feeling about latin music because I'm half Puerto Rican and I grew up in a house that played, day and night would play Tito Fuente, Ray Barreto, Celia Cruz, Mongo Santa Maria, and I, that stuff is in my blood. Yeah. You know? So I have a good rhythmical concept, thankfully through that music and other things that I learned over the years. Yeah. So that's really the bottom line for my playing. And so, you know, I see a lot of guys that are, you know, astute bebop players on electric bass, and that's not just, that's not something that I normally gravitate towards. Yeah. It's not part of my vocabulary. Yeah. But you've managed to carve out your own voice, which I think is... I have a little different slant on yeah. things, and it's, it is what it is, and it works really well, I have to say, with the music of the Jeff Lorber Refusion, because it's all steeped in R&B yeah. and, and this jazz fusion kind of uh, element, you know, everything from like a little bit of weather report to like, uh, you know. Some head on us a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, that that's all in my wheelhouse, mm. you know. And playing with, um, playing with Gary, Gary Novak, um, you guys have done quite a lot of work together. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you feel um, you work with drummers or, or what's your what's your happy place in terms of rhythm section? The kick drum. The kick drum. Yeah. That's my happy place, and and I I'm a frustrated drummer. I love drums. You know, I actually started playing drums at a very young age, but never really got anywhere with it. And uh, you know, I learned a lot about percussion instruments okay. because of the, the whole Puerto Rican thing. Puerto Rican thing. And when I was a tiny kid. I used to get dragged to all the family weddings and, and the parties, right, uh, with all the Puerto Rican relatives, and they would be, uh, you know, like um, uh, cooking a, an entire pig you know, on a skewer, right? And, uh, you know, all the traditional Cuban Puerto Rican food and listening to salsa music, and sometimes there would be live salsa bands, oh, too. Cool. So I would actually 
see firsthand guys playing cowbells and shakers yeah. and, and maracas and kungas and bongos and timbales. Okay. And all that stuff was like so inspiring to me, you know. So when I get together with a drummer, no matter who it is, the first thing I do is lock into the kick drum. And I figure if I got that going on, the band has a foundation, yeah. solid. Yeah. Then once you start playing with somebody, even if it's just one time, you pick up things pretty quickly you know, as far as what they do and how they phrase things. Mm -hmm. And um, I have kind of a, you know, I mean, I've been playing for over 50 years now, so I have some kind of the pretty cool instinctual <laughs> kind of things that just sort of happen, yeah. you know. And I've played with enough drummers. Uh, in fact, I did a thing uh, with a drum magazine in London. Okay. They asked me about drummers and relationship with bass players and drummers, very important. And uh, I gave them a list of all the drummers that I've been working with all the years. It's, I, I don't even know how many guys are on it. I'll be happy to send you the list. That would be, be interesting, yeah. I'll send you a list of all the drummers and percussionists I've played and with. Is there some maybe highlights from there? Guys that really you really connected with? Oh yeah, well, Will Kennedy with the Yellow Jackets, sure. uh, Ricky Lawson, who was the original drummer with the Jackets, and I did um, a year or so of playing with him prior uh, to the Yellow Jackets mm. uh, with Flora, actually a couple of years, with Flora Purim's band and with Roy Ayer's band. Oh, Roy Ayer's band. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. So I uh, did, uh, <laughs> did like a five or six month tour with Roy Ayer's uh, Ubiquity. Um, and Ricky was the drummer. Um, uh, Vinnie Caliuda, who I started playing with when he first came to LA in 1977, yeah. something around there. Um, Gary, special player, I love playing with him. Uh, I did a lot of sessions with Jeff Picaro. Did you? Uh, and with, I did some with Jim Keltner. Okay. I love playing with those guys. Yeah. I also did a fair amount of sessions with Carlos Vega, who yeah. was really wonderful. Um, I did a lot of playing with Peter Erskine. Oh. Uh, really fantastic mm. musician. That's a pretty... Right there is a kind yeah. of an eclectic <laughs> bunch of people. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, I've done quite a bit of playing over the last uh, two plus years with one of the uh, homegrown drummers from Melbourne, uh, Virgil Donati. Sure, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that covers his... And then throw in Dave Weckl. And then why, not? Go, why not? Why not? So uh, with all that, all different drummers, yeah. all different uh, and concepts, you, techniques, and, you and all need to, At that kind of level, guys who are chameleon-like but also have their own voice, like, do you find that it's a, you meet in the middle, or sometimes you, oh, that's where he's sitting, or sometimes it's all the way around? Well, I think it's always a conversation on some mm. level. Um, but I, I tend to always be willing to go to the drums, because sure. I'm a frustrated drummer, and I look at the bass as being a, a melodic drum. Okay. You know, because yeah. it's like very in, rhythmical. Like music, yeah. And if I'm, if I'm copying for, say, like a drum beat mm. on the bass, you know, kick, snare, hi-hat, and I'm playing something that's uh, uh, in unison on some level, uh, or at least, um, you know, identifying certain portions of what the, those patterns are, 
then basically I'm playing a drum beat sure. on the bass, yeah. but I'm adding notes yeah. to it. So yeah, uh, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Um, and, and rhythm has always been probably the strongest part of my playing uh, of anything. And then I, over the years, learned about the different genres and what's expected, you know, from reggae to, you know, walking bass and straight ahead jazz to, you know, funk you know, uh, R&B bass stylings like James Jamerson or mm. Chuck Rainey, you know, um, Anthony Jackson, you know, uh, people like that. And then, uh, you know, pop music, country music, all that stuff. So if you have all that going on and understand what all those things are and then you add a strong rhythmical concept to all that, you can do some interesting things within the genre. Sure. Uh, yeah. With all that, so that's I've been dealing with that over the years, and helps me play with a lot of variety of different drummers. Yeah, you know. Yeah, If you could go back in time, <laughs> is there any advice that you would give a young Jimmy Haslip? Well, you know, I, I kind of feel like I did a lot of the right things. Uh, you know, I mentioned before keeping an open mind. Mm. Uh, I think that that's a really good way to move things ahead, you know. Yeah. Um, being a team player, I've, that I learned, you know, all through school, being involved in athletics. I was really into playing sports. And as you know, being on a sports team, everyone relies on one another to do their job and to contribute and to support mm. the team. So it, it's no different and being on stage with you know three other guys sure. you're there to help things out you know yeah and uh and it goes beyond obviously that's just one of the relegations of being on the bandstand with some guys that's just one little aspect but it's important um, yeah you know if you go out there and just start flailing away and not and not listening to anybody it's, it's going to be a disaster. If you, don't, if you don't pass the ball, nobody's going to score. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, team playing, uh, open-mindedness, um, and, you know, just in, in all, in those two aspects comes along uh, being a, a good person, uh, being a helpful person, mm. and uh, a supportive person, and, and even like a... Um, uh, someone that, that helps in, in uh, solving problems, being a, solve, uh, a problem solver, um, uh, and uh, trying to learn as much about your uh, vocation, your, what you do. What you do. You know, so that when you come to a situation with other musicians and you're in a room, say, recording a record, you have knowledge sure. that you can help. Spending, in, spending time on your craft. And, and yes, and yeah. also being uh, really um, uh, focused on, on studying and, and practicing and all that, so that when you come together with musicians as well, you, you're prepared to. Yeah, and you can concentrate on making music instead of just trying to get it right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So all those things, and I think that's always been 
part of who I mm. am from the very beginning, even when I was playing bands in high school. And you know, through all of that is just the general work ethic, I guess, you know? Yeah, that commitment. which I, you know, I've been fortunate to have sort of built in. I mean, I, I've never really had to make myself study or practice or prepare for a gig. It's yeah. just something that I want to do. Sure. And so. are you, are you, is there anything you're working on these days in your playing? I'm always working on yeah? stuff. Yeah, I've been, you know, and, and, well, and, and when I'm in a situation like this, we're here for a whole week, and I know I have to solo on certain tunes. Yeah, and I have, you know, I've soloed on a, on a bunch of these tunes a lot, mm. so I have a lot of things already, kind of, that are in in the like a, framework. It's a vo yeah framework of vocabulary of things I can use. Yeah. You know? Because um, I came up with a concept some years ago for a book uh, on improvisation. Okay. And basically, it's all this stuff. It's a ton of stuff. I even study out of the book because some of it I've forgotten. And I go, <laughs> well, what was that? Um, but um, basically, the, the, the concept of the book was here you are, you're in the middle and surrounded by all these different things that you can select at random mm -hmm. little tools so scales a lot of scales there's so many scales um, and that's always a you know a, a study you sure. know to, to learn more scales and I, I even in doing that I came up with the idea of all right there's a system called pentatonic scales okay what is a pentatonic scale it's Pentatonic scale is a scale with five notes. And there's a normal pentatonic scale that's taught in school. Mm -hmm. And and in the uh, penta means five, so five notes. And si the sixth note is the octave, right? Yeah. Uh, and then it just so happens that uh, the, when I organized them years ago, I realized that there were five inversions of a pentatonic scale up the neck. Okay. For each each uh, key, right? In each key, and once you do those five patterns, then it repeats an octave above, right? Yeah. So all that made sense. Oh wow, okay, pent penta five, five scales. But then, I, in the last maybe six or seven years, when I started playing with Alan Allsworth, <laughs> he started really stretching my harmonic knowledge to some other places. <laughs> And I was trying to like really figure out some different things to play, even though I didn't understand a lot of the things that he was playing. I mean, I could hear yeah. what he was playing, but I couldn't put my finger and tell you, and he, this is what he's doing. He, he has a kind of unique uh, system as well, doesn't he? So you can't really tell you exactly what it is either. No, and it's very unusual and, and so beautiful. Yeah. I and mean, it's unbelievable. So with that, I was motivated to just try to find some new shit to yeah. play. So I, I, I took the pentatonic scale and, I, and then I started finding uh, five note patterns that weren't in the normal configuration. Okay. And they're pentatonic scales, but they're Different. now altered pentatonic scales. So I've ventured off in the last seven years into finding as many altered pentatonic scales <laughs> as I can possibly find and study them and try to memorize certain aspects of that and hopefully 
in time, some of that ends up seeping into your fiber yeah. so that it just naturally comes out. Mm. And some of that has, I've noticed, comes out. Cool. Um, not to my liking I would like it I'm, I'm impatient about stuff like that but uh, I've also learned even though with my impatience I've learned to be patient because you know, I understand that sometimes the process takes longer than you would want and that's sure. just the way it is there's already there's already so much information in there already that you're trying to squeeze more in and, and, and it just takes time for things to be to become part of your your language I think yeah when you, when you already have something. There's fingering and all that stuff. And mm. I'm already uh, sort of at a disadvantage in a certain way because I play upside down. Okay. And I was so wondering the notes about that. are all but weird. then on the flip side of that, you must be have access to... I have access to other things other that are that, that conventional players don't have access to. Yeah. So it's it's a trade-off in yeah. that sense, you know. Yeah. And... Um, the, the improvisation thing, um, did that start early on in your career? I, I think um, when I started taking improvisation more seriously uh, was in the mid-70s when I was in the uh, band with Flora Purim and Ayerto and this incredible trombone player named Raul D'Souza. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my, improvis my improvisation was not worthy, really. It was, it, it, it had something going on, but it needed a lot of work, mm. and and uh, this trombone player in Ayrton Flores band was very kind, and he would pull me aside and he gave me some pointers and things. Um, and was that about the same time you were um, taking lessons with Jacko? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jacko could see I had a lot of chops, but I just didn't have a lot of improvisational skills, and that's what he basically was talking to me about, like mm. learning more. That's why he he pointed me towards Bach. Mm -hmm. And he pointed me towards unusual um, kind of note combinations you might not exactly come up with. yeah because I remember then, hearing an interview with him and he kind of said he would just play anything you know play melodies just read stuff and just just learn whatever he could exactly yeah and that's how you come up with new stuff I guess that's how you do it mm -hmm. so he pointed me in that direction and from that point on since seventy five it's been a study <laughs> and it's an ongoing study and I'm Still there. I was practicing this morning for a couple there of hours. Go. Still enjoying just it. Working on some things on this one tune. You know, uh, one difficult thing is like when you got a solo over one chord, you know, then it's like, yeah. how do you make this one chord really interesting? And sure. also, you know, not just interesting, but also, you know, tell a story. Yeah. Um, do you feel as a, as, as a bass player, um, we're at any kind of disadvantage when it comes to when it comes to connecting uh, soloistically with people. Well, I think at first it was yeah. Mm -hmm. and the, when I started pursuing all this in the seventies, I think I was at a serious disadvantage. But then, you know, meeting Jocko and then uh, listening to a lot of string bass players. Okay. Uh, I found that not to be true. I thought there is a way to be a very melodic instrument. And also I was, even though I didn't really walk into this, but years later I started realizing that I was really into progressive rock. <laughs> and uh, a lot of those bass players were very melodic. You know, Chris Squire, yeah. uh, for one. Uh, uh, Barry Oakley, and you know who that is? I know is? the name. He was uh, the uh, bassist in the Allman Brothers. Almost. You know. Okay. 
these guys were super melodic. And then, of course, I got really into Weather Report uh, early in the 70s and got Miroslav Vitos, mm. <laughs> pretty incredible. And later when they got into more electric stuff, I got into Alfonso Johnson, who was very modal. Um, so that's when I started really realizing there's mm. more to this instrument than just playing the root of the chord. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be, um, you know, with, with some study and some serious focus, it can be made into a very melodic mm. instrument that helps things uh, in a very harmonic and melodic way. So in that sense, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting instrument because it also, as I mentioned before, I look at the instrument as a melodic drum, but then at the same time it can also be an instrument that plays a melody yeah. or a solo. Is that why you were drawn to, to get in the six string to, to help with that melodicism? Well, that, that was part of it. Uh, really, the, the one main motivation was that um, I, I wanted to bring some other element into the Yellow Jackets. And the, I got hit in the head with a light bulb one day, and I thought, you know, we started off uh, the first couple of records with uh, one of the voices being guitar, mm -hmm. and now you know, years later, in the, in the uh, mid-80s into the 90s, there was no guitar mm -hmm. on the, on, in the band. So that's when I thought, if I extend the range of the instrument and go into the baritone guitar range, I could bring a, at least a little bit of that color into sure, the yeah. music. And as a result, I ended up playing a lot of melodies with the saxophone or the piano, yeah. and it's a nice sound. So. Um, that was the original motivation, but then of course that motivation uh, uh, grew in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. with uh, the soloing and all that. Um, yeah. And would you would you ever do a gig like like Jeff Lauber on just a P bass? <laughs> I could do it, but I'd be I would feel partly naked. Right. Yeah, because I feel like I contribute on. Um, levels uh, other other places you know with uh, sure. higher notes and soloing um chordal stuff you know and, chordal stuff yeah. and, and and also dropping down below that below the, the yeah e. under yeah i'm going, going yeah. way down into the low d flats and yeah. c's and it's b's you know it adds another dimension to the bottom end so yeah and we've done uh gigs as a trio so in that sense it's keyboards drums and bass okay. and then i'm also Sort of doing the guitaristic kind of thing, although I'm, I'm far from being a guitar player. Yeah. I'm just I know a little bit about, you know, playing some chords and and the, the solo thing enters into this kind of blues guitar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it does add that color to the music, and then I'm also extremely comfortable just playing bass. Sure. So yeah, yeah, cool. Um. Got CDs. CDs to show us. Okay, and I brought, yeah. <coughs> I brought you presents, so something old and something new and something odd. Uh, hi. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> and something that um, something I borrowed just... Something and something blue. Something that I, yeah. <laughs> something I didn't produce uh, but played on. So this, uh, this new one is a guitarist from L.A. His name is Jeff Richman. I produced this as my third record producing for him. And Vinnie Colliud is on drums, a nice list of musicians on there. Featuring um, and Will Lee. So Will Lee played on a t on two tunes. Yeah. Bob. 
Oh, Gergel. Gergel Borlai, yeah, who I've played with a bunch. Wow, he's... He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. So there's that, and I see... <laughs> I produced that's a nice record, and that's just coming out in November, so you have an advanced copy. Oh. This is old. This is my third solo project. It's called Nightfall, and I uh, produced it with Joe Vanelli, who's Gino Vanelli's older brother. I featured him because he was played all the keyboards on there. Okay. And we wrote all the material together. <clears throat> and what's the band on this? Well, it's just basically me and Joe, and then we've brought in a few people to guest. Yeah? Okay. There's absolutely no drums on it. Right, really? It's all programmed. Ah, okay. So there is drums, but it's not. Oh, there's drums, yeah, drummer. but no real drummer. It's yeah. all loops and programs and okay. samples. And then uh, there is a percussionist that I brought in, a Cuban percussionist that I've worked with who did some tambales and mm -hmm. kungas, and another percussionist who I produced a band that he was in, interesting guy, I think he studied uh, percussion in Haiti, and he's an American guy, but he's very interesting guy. He plays with a jam band called uh, String Cheese Incident. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. And, and the, Nightfall? Nightfall is the name of that record. And then uh, I was brought in to play bass on this interesting project, which is uh, the best I can do is say that it's um, it's a progressive country rock record that has everything from like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and the Eagles type vocals mm -hmm. and things, and even progressions. But it also has an element of like Jethro Tull. Okay. So it's very There's interesting. Some on there. Yeah. There's a flautist <laughs> whose name is Toad. Sounds appropriate. <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's called Magic Music. Cool. And there's also a, a, I was basically like a guest. Yep. There's a, a group of guys, three guys that sing, wrote all the songs, and were really the original members of the band. But they uh, the producer who's a friend of mine named Tim Goodman is a really good guitar player, songwriter, and vocalist himself. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he produced it and they, they needed to get a bass player on a lot of the material so he brought me in. Okay. But they also brought in Billy Payne on piano, uh, who played with Little Feet. Right, okay. And uh, Scarlett Rivera on fiddle, who played with Bob Dylan. And also Sam Bush on fiddle, who played with Bela Fleck. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, so there's some really cool yeah. music there. So enjoy that. Oh, and, well, I can't uh, wait to check them out, man. That's it for. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 there's a lot of things I could have brought, but oh. I, I, I got that in my suitcase for you. Can't wait to check it out. And we got. Um, and then we got your I got record. One for you. All right. <laughs> Did you get it? Thank you very much. No. I'm going to check this out. Yeah, I'll enjoy it, man. Cool. Pickpocket. Pickpocket, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Jimmy, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure and a blast. Guys, thanks for watching. Um, keep practicing, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.